Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. A good true crime documentary is always one with a lot of twists and turns and is always thought-provoking. Recently, I watched one on Netflix that covered the Lucy Blackman case, which I hadn't heard of, but the story and the way the filmmakers presented it is very well done. Personally, I don't watch a ton of them because I'm pretty much immersed in true crime on a weekly basis, so when it's time to chill, I'm looking to do some Barbenheimer type of viewing. But I wanted to at least let you guys know about Lucy's story, as well as a few other true crime docs that you may want to check out. Welcome, guys, to our Patreon-only patrons episode. Hope you enjoy it, and all these stories can be found on Netflix. They're not a sponsor or anything. If you want to dig them up and watch them yourselves, you can. Here are five insane true crime stories worthy of a documentary. Number five, Lucy Blackman. In May of 2000, 21-year-old Lucy Blackman and Louise Phillips, two friends from Seven Oaks in Kent, UK, were on a gap year. 
At that time, Blackman was working as an airline stewardess, but was looking for something more adventurous and exciting. She had always been fascinated by Japanese culture and traditions, and so she decided to check it out for herself, and her and Phillips made the move abroad. Their dreams of an exciting year ahead led them to the Casablanca Bar in Rapongi, Tokyo, where they secured jobs as hostesses. Now, this job is a bit different than your typical American hostess job, but they have young girls that are paid to entertain men that are visiting the bar. They sit down and drink with them to keep them company, but it's also fairly innocent. So in other words, the girls could take the hangouts beyond the confines of the bar if they wanted, but also could just as easily keep things innocent. But on July 1st of 2000, a nightmare began to unfold. Blackman went missing after supposedly taking one of her customers up on an offer to hang outside of the Casablanca bar. Phillips hadn't heard from her friend when a mysterious call the following day came in where an unidentified man claimed that Blackman had joined a cult and that she would never see her friend again. Scared, immediately Phillips reached out to Blackman's family back in the UK. The disappearance led Lucy's sister Sophie and their father Tim to Japan, where they held a press conference pleading for information and solving the case. Their desperate search for Lucy led to the distribution of around 30,000 missing persons posters around Tokyo, and a substantial reward was also offered. Initially, the Japanese authorities dismissed the disappearance as a case of a young woman running off with a new boyfriend. There were locals in the know that said that because this wasn't a Japanese native and instead a foreigner who was missing, the police wouldn't put in that hard an effort. Now, her father Tim knew this and pushed the news everywhere he could, especially back home in the UK where it became a sensation. The mounting pressure from the UK's Foreign Secretary Robin Cook and the Blackman family's direct meeting with then-PM Tony Blair prompted the Japanese authorities to dig deeper into this case. Throughout the investigation, there were a series of disheartening leads, A letter, purporting to be from Lucy herself, saying she wanted to be left alone, was found to be a forgery. And a Japanese businessman, initially implicated, was later found dead in his apartment. But after some digging through and finding a man who was secretive, rich, and used a lot of aliases, their investigation eventually got them to a man named Joji Obara. This Korean-Japanese property developer was questioned by police, While he admitted to meeting Lucy, he denied any further involvement. But as the case received more attention, other women started to step forward to recount disturbing encounters with Obara. Talking of being taken away to his oceanfront apartment about two hours away from Tokyo, and waking up the next day feeling sick and sore, not remembering much of what transpired, if anything at all. A search warrant into his place revealed a large amount of drugs and alcohol, also a thick metal clasp above the bed. And then they found the videotapes, over 400 in fact, with several women's names scribbled on them. What was on those tapes was disturbing, as Abara would drug the women until they passed out before lifting their legs up using that metal clasp along with a chain. 
He had years worth of tapes, and every encounter he had was documented. Some of the female victims were shocked when they saw the videos. Many claimed that it wasn't even them in the tapes they were watching, denying that such a horrific thing could have happened to them. The police had to build a case, so one by one they brought the women in and showed them their own videos. And seven months after going missing on February 9th, the tragic discovery was made. Using dogs and ground-penetrating radar, detectives found Lucy's mutilated remains close to one of Abara's properties. Abara, of course, became the prime suspect, charged with drugging, raping, and killing Blackman, as well as raping eight other women and the manslaughter of Australian model Karita Ridgway, another hostess in Tokyo's nightlife scene. Obara's trial began in October of 2002 and it stretched on for nearly five years. In April of 2007, the court ruled. While found guilty of raping nine other women and the manslaughter of Ridgeway, he was actually acquitted of Blackman's murder due to the lack of forensic evidence linking him directly to her death. This verdict left Blackman's family devastated, with her mother Jane expressing her heartbreak to the media. But in 2008, an appeal from the prosecution led to the Tokyo High Court ruling Obara guilty of the abduction, dismemberment, and disposal of Blackman's body. Obara's final appeal was rejected in December of 2010, and so he remains behind bars to this day. Number 4. The Mata Viejitas Murders In 1957, in the rural outskirts of Hidalgo, Mexico, Juana Barraza, often referred to as the Lady of Silence, was born. This, however, was not a title of respect or admiration, but a sinister alias to one of Mexico's most infamous female serial killers. Born to Trinidad Barraza, a police officer, and Justa Samperio, an alcoholic prostitute, Juana's life was fraught with hardships from the jump. Abandoned, illiterate, and eventually sold by her mom for three beers at the tender age of 12, the girl found herself trapped in a twisted world of abuse. This harsh upbringing culminated in two pregnancies, both resulting in miscarriages, pushing her towards an early departure to Mexico City following her mother's death. Arriving there, Juana tried to find her way in life during a series of failed marriages while juggling a myriad of jobs. However, it was her moonlighting as the masked wrestler La Dama del Silencio that gave her a unique outlet. This served as a symbolic representation of her quiet and introverted personality while also granting her an odd form of empowerment in the face of her tormented past. Despite this, her financial struggles forced her into a life of petty crime, a life that would later escalate into a spree of terrifying murders. By the late 90s, the media began to report on the increasing number of elderly deaths that were happening in Mexico City. The mysterious El Mataviejitas, as they dubbed him, which meant little old lady killer, was a presumed male serial killer. 
Police denied at first that this was a serial killer at work and felt it was media sensationalism that was tying these crimes together. But the public felt different, and for good reason. Over the span of eight years, between 42 to 48 murders occurred in Mexico that all targeted women over 60. As the frequency and brutality of these crimes escalated, the public found themselves locked in a state of fear and confusion. This tall, masculine figure everyone thought this killer was disguised themselves as a city councilor member or social worker to gain entry into homes. They remained elusive, sowing seeds of terror in the hearts of Mexico City's elderly. It took till late 2005, following the murder of prominent Mexican criminologist Luis Gonzalez's mother, for the police to finally acknowledge the existence of a serial killer. Juana's murders were marked by chilling precision, gaining her victims' trust under the guise of a nurse or social worker, who then strangled them inside their home, leaving them to be discovered. And the depth of her brutality became apparent when she was finally apprehended in 2006, revealing a trophy room adorned with stolen items from her victims and newspaper clippings detailing her heinous crimes. The elderly women who led her into their homes did so because, even though they knew there was a killer out there, everyone thought it was a man. Despite her illiteracy, Juana had built a macabre collection that documented her reign of terror, which would eventually lead to her conviction for 16 murders in 2008, earning her a 759-year sentence. Despite the severity of her crimes, she is due for parole in 2058 at the ripe age of 100. The reason she targeted older women was twofold. One, it allowed her to be able to overpower her victims and then rob them. But that murderous instinct came from something much more deep-seated and dark. In each of her victims, she saw her mother in them, a woman she hated and resented for her life. And so, each kill for her was an attempt to exact revenge. Number three, abducted in plain sight. The story that this doc covers took place in the 1970s in the faith-based community of Pocatello, Idaho, and it's strange and hard to believe. It revolves around Jan Broberg, who was just nine years old at the time, living in a close-knit religious family. The Broberg family had a great relationship with another family, the Burkholds. The patriarchs of both families were both named Bob, They were respected leaders within their local chapters of the Church of Latter-day Saints. The Burkholds' Bob, however, would soon show a profound, sinister side. With many shared interests, including music, crafts, and the occasional picnic, the two families grew exceptionally close. The Burchold patriarch, dubbed B to avoid confusion, was often seen as a fun, loving figure frequently taking the Broberg children out for treats with his own kids. He was a fascinating storyteller, often captivating them with tales of UFOs and alien abductions. However, when Jan turned 12, the narrative changed, as all these years B had just been grooming and manipulating not only Jan, but her parents too. 
He went on to kidnap and completely brainwash the young girl. It would later emerge that by the time she was 14, B had raped her more than 200 times. But his machinations didn't stop at Jan, because in the years prior, it was discovered that B had seduced Jan's mother at one point and even coerced her dad into performing a sexual act as well. This messed up saga of the Brobergs' victimization was unveiled to the world in the 2019 Netflix doc, Abducted in Plain Sight. Despite his confession to kidnapping Jan and a later conviction for the rape of another child, B never spent more than a year in prison. He was a master manipulator, charismatic sociopath who used his charm to devastating effect. Jan, now 60, recently spoke out about the backlash her family faced following the viral Netflix documentary. Many blamed her parents, questioning how they could have allowed such horrific acts to happen to their preteen daughter. But Jan defended her parents, arguing that they too were victims, manipulated and groomed by B. The depth of the family's trust in him was such that when he took 12-year-old Jan to a horseback riding lesson one fall day in 1974 and didn't return that night, the family was worried, yet they didn't suspect his true motives. It took them more than two days to notify the police, persuaded not to by B's wife, Gail, who attributed his actions to manic depression. And by then, B had taken Jan to Mexico, subjecting her to a harrowing brainwashing session. He convinced her that the fate of an alien race depended on her engaging in sex acts with him and having a child before she turned 16. This orchestrated terror had a profound effect on the young girl, driving her into a state of fear and compliance. The family was desperate to get her back, and so they allowed B to legally marry the 12-year-old in Mexico, a demand he made in exchange for returning the girl. After retrieving Jam, they signed an affidavit stating that they had given permission for B to take her to Mexico, and thereby undermining the FBI's case against him. Mother Mary Ann, who's 84, still feels ashamed for falling for Burkle's manipulation. Despite the thousands of people who attacked her parents on social media after the documentary's release, Jam maintains that she has nothing to forgive. She emphasizes that the blame rests squarely on one individual, Robert Burkle. Number two, Brittany Smith. The documentary film State of Alabama vs. Brittany Smith, directed by Ryan White, who's known for his work on The Keepers, delves into the controversial legal case of Brittany Smith an Alabama mother who found herself in the middle of a horrific nightmare and fought back. Her story begins in January of 2019 down in the town of Stevenson, Alabama. Brittany, a local resident and mother, was reacquainted with 38-year-old Todd Smith, no relation, a former friend from her teenage years. Their connection was innocent enough. Brittany was interested in purchasing a pit bull puppy, and Todd happened to breed them. However, during their meeting, he revealed how he was down on his luck and homeless. Showing sympathy, Brittany offered him a temporary place to stay. 
Her act of kindness quickly turned into a horrifying ordeal when she alleged that Todd raped and strangled her inside her home. In an act of desperation that night, she called her brother Chris, but didn't really know if telling him was the right thing to do. She just needed someone she trusted to be with her. Chris then took her to a nearby store where she bought a pack of smokes, and there she confided in the clerk about the attack, even writing Todd's name on a piece of paper in case she was later found dead. When they got back to her home, Todd was still there. Brittany had her brother go back to the store to talk to the clerk, and sure enough, brother came back to the house with a gun to confront Todd. A fight then ensued, causing the gun to fall to the ground. Brittany picked it up and then fatally shot Todd. She would go on to claim self-defense and fear for her and her brother's life. The aftermath had Brittany arrested and charged with murder, her legal battle hanging on the controversial Stand Your Ground defense law. In over 30 U.S. states, including Alabama, this law allows citizens to use lethal force to protect themselves against perceived threats. But Brittany's case shone a harsh light on the bias faced by women invoking this law. Her defense was then further complicated when a sexual assault nurse could not conclusively determine whether Brittany had been raped. However, the nurse did document over 30 injuries consistent with physical assault, including signs of strangulation and bite marks. Despite this, the judge argued that Brittany did not need to use lethal force and painted her brother as an aggressor for bringing a gun into the home. Brittany was initially offered a plea deal of 25 years but refused, adamant she was innocent. However, as the case progressed, she was additionally indicted on a second-degree arson charge from an unrelated fire at a mobile home, risking an even longer sentence. With amounting pressure, Brittany accepted a revised plea deal, pleading guilty to murder and arson. She was sentenced to 20 years for the killing and 15 years for the fire, which was later reduced to 36 months with credit for time served. Brittany's story takes a further disturbing turn when it was revealed that Todd had a long history of violence against women, with an arrest record tallying up to 71. Despite this shocking revelation, Brittany found herself behind bars again for violation of probation. She relapsed on methamphetamine, resulting in a 45-day jail sentence for parole violation. Number 1. Carlos de Luna This story is a dive into one of the most controversial stories of wrongful conviction ever in the U.S. It's about Carlos de Luna, a young Corpus Christi man who was executed in 1989 for a murder he repeatedly claimed he didn't commit. On a cold February night in 1983, the life of Wanda Lopez, a 24-year-old clerk working at a Sigmore Shamrock station, was tragically cut short. A chilling call to the police recorded her final moments, from her initial calm report of a man with a knife to her terrified screams as she was brutally stabbed. The murder, as horrendous as it was, seemed like an open and shut case to the Corpus Christi Police Department. The prime suspect was identified as Carlos de Luna, a troubled 20-year-old with a lengthy rap sheet. On the night of the crime, de Luna was discovered hiding under a truck, 
fitting the eyewitness description of a Hispanic man in a gray sweatshirt who ran from the scene of the crime. His apprehension was swift, with his clothing suspiciously devoid of any blood despite the brutal nature of the crime. The case against Aluna hinged primarily on the shaky eyewitness identification from Kevin Baker, who despite being unsure, was led to believe that DeLuna was the culprit due to police assertions. DeLuna was adamant about his innocence and refused to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. And he pointed the finger at another man, Carlos Hernandez, but his claims fell on deaf ears. The prosecution mocked Hernandez's mere existence, dubbing him a phantom, and DeLuna was subsequently sentenced to death On December 7th of 1989, that sentence was carried out by lethal injection. It wasn't until years later in 2003 when Columbia Law School professor James Liebman stumbled upon the case while researching the reliability of eyewitness testimonies that the unsettling truth began to unfold. In an extensive investigation, it was discovered that Carlos Hernandez was not a phantom at all. He was a violent criminal who liked using lock blade knives, remarkably similar to the one used in Lopez's murder, and he bore an uncanny resemblance to DeLuna. Carlos Hernandez. More disturbing findings emerged when Liebman's research was corroborated by investigative reporters Maurice Posley and Steve Mills. They uncovered five witnesses who claimed Hernandez had boasted about killing Lopez. Yet the most damning revelation came from an unassigned detective who revealed that he had received information about Hernandez being the real killer, but this crucial lead was dismissed. Despite the mounting evidence pointing to DeLuna's innocence and Hernandez's guilt, proving this conclusively has been elusive due to the lack of physical evidence. Attempts to locate evidence from the original crime scene, such as the murder weapon and a pack of cigarettes left by the killer, have all been fruitless. The tragic irony is that the most substantial proof of DeLuna's innocence now may be lost forever. One of the most compelling pieces from the film is the recounting by a neighborhood man, Raymond Nunez, who remembered seeing two men, not one, fleeing the scene on that fateful night. This piece of testimony supports DeLuna's initial claim that there were two people running away from that gas station and not one. Despite the mounting circumstantial evidence, the legal exoneration of Carlos DeLuna remains elusive. His case, though underscores the profound flaws within the criminal justice system, begging the question, did Texas execute an innocent man? So, some pretty crazy stories today on this list. Hope you enjoyed them, and maybe they'll open you up to checking out the documentaries on Netflix. Like I said, I saw the Lucy Blackman one, and it's pretty good. That's going to do it for this Patreon-exclusive patrons episode, guys. If you have any docs that blow your mind, I'd love to know them in the comments. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys soon. 
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.